You're listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast with your hosts, Attorney Dan Mayer and Licensed Counselor Melissa Westner. Dan is not your attorney and Melissa is not your therapist, but they're here to help you cross your T's and dot your I's as they talk about all the things you wish you had learned in grad school. And now, here are your hosts. Hi there and welcome back. Today, Dan and I are super excited to be talking with someone that we both really, really like and appreciate, Kristen Boyce. Kristen is a licensed marriage and family therapist, owner of Pathways to Healing Counseling, and the Close the Chapter podcast host. She specializes in improving self-worth, helping couples and families resolve conflicts and develop powerful communication skills, effective parenting strategies, making life transitions. Um, But most importantly, she instills hope, helps people create possibilities, and develop a sense of inner peace. And one of the things about Kristen is that she is being very humble because I've known her for over a year and a half now. And there's some information in her bio that I didn't even know about her. Um, And so today, preparing for our recording, I learned that she was an executive at a Fortune 500 company. Yes, indeed. I had no idea, right? I had no idea either. I know. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, I, Kristen, absolutely welcome. You know, this is one of the guests that Melissa and I get to have on occasionally where we actually know the person really well and have communicated and corresponded and, you know, even in, in some ways virtually hung out with them before. And Kristen's one of these people. So it's wonderful to have you on today. Thank you so much for having me. I love you both. And I'm excited to share about this topic. Now, one of the things that we're going to be talking about today, um, it's a really heavy topic. But I think it's a really important conversation to have, um, especially just given the times we're living in. Um, we're going to and, and Kristen are going to talk today about navigating a school shooting and helping the community, you know, including teachers, administrators, parents, students and families um, rehabilitate while going through their own process. And like I said, now, I just think it's timely. It's unfortunate, but I, I think it's just such a timely, important topic. And, and I'm so glad to have you here to talk about it. Yeah, I wish I didn't have to talk about it, but fortunately or fortunately, we can share our experience and hopefully help other people navigate this crisis. So I want to start off by asking the, I think maybe one of the most obvious questions people are wondering is having you want to talk about this means that you must have some sort of experience with this. So can you tell us a bit about that? Yes, I'll give you the Cliff Notes version just so, but the details do matter because it's important that People get the emotional impact. And so I just want to offer a activation slash trigger warning for those that might have any specific trauma around shootings that we will be talking in detail about it. Not too much specificity, enough to create the picture of what happened. So we live in a suburb of Indianapolis, a very, I would say, middle class community, if you will. Um, didn't expect this to happen in our backyard. It literally happened in my backyard. So we have a middle school um, that's just um, like less than, I would say, a minute from our house. And all of a sudden I'm at work seeing clients. So I own a group practice and the other clinicians are seeing clients. We're in our building. And so all of a sudden I see sirens. I mean, just we're on a major thoroughfare. So I just see police. I see fire trucks, one after the other, one after the other, one after the other. And I'm just going, huh, I wonder what happened. Send love and light and prayers to those people. 
focus. I'm doing an EMDR session. So as you know, it takes a lot of presence. We're working through a lot of trauma. So I'm really trying to recenter, reground, be with my client. All of a sudden I hear a knock on my door. And usually we don't interrupt anybody's sessions unless there's an emergency. So she's like, uh, I'm going to need you to come out here. So I take a deep breath and I say, okay, I, I ask my client, stabilize my client because this is important to know when you have a crisis mm-hmm. and you're seeing a client. You, I had to stabilize my client, make sure my t- client was okay, reground my client. Once I did that, I stepped outside and I'm trying to make sure I'm grounded because I know something's happened because all of the sirens, I, my other clinicians that work for me, one of the gals said there has been a shooting at the middle school. So I have children. I have one at the elementary school and I had one at a different school. So I did not have any children there at that time. But this happens. You know, you have your own children at the school. Several of my clinicians had children at the high school. So she said there's been a shooting and there's been an emergency. We need to lock down the facility. Because when there's a shooting, you don't think about locking down your own facility. You're thinking about the facility where the shootings happened. Mm -hmm. So we did not have a shooting protocol. We did not have a protocol for if there's a shooting in the nearby area, here's how we need to lock down our facility. So I very quickly on the fly with my clinicians, we came up with a plan. She walked out to the people that were in the cars outside and said, there's been a shooting nearby. You can either stay in your car or you can come in and we can, we're locking the facility. We had to wrap up our client sessions because we're at the point where we don't know what's happening. Our clinicians are traumatized because they have children at schools. This was no longer going to be, we were going to be able to be of service to the clients we had in the moment. Then one of our clinicians is connected to the mayor. The mayor finds out we are trauma trained and says, we would love for you to come to the facility and help navigate this. So we all kind of recenter, regroup. Everybody's, you know, now the clients are taken care of. They go home. We're down. This is out of, we're out of lockdown now. They've stabilized the situation. What they did is they bust, this is important to note about trauma. They bust the students from the middle school to the high school. And then they basically contain them in the gym without connection to their parents without any soothing techniques to calm their nervous systems down. And so we were we were basically led into the school. Of course, it was very tight security. I had my EMDR tappers, my whole team does, because we're all EMDR trained. Like, what are the chances that we're going to be able to be on site? And they, so we all, we, we divvied up our duties. And this is important as a clinician and as a group practice owner to be able to have, think quickly, Like, how can we? And I have very skilled clinicians. So they all pitched in. We all worked together to come up with a plan. We noticed that in the gym, you could have dropped a pin. We had, there was probably, I would say, a couple thousand students, maybe two to 3,000 students. There was a lot of students in the gym. They were in a freeze Mm -hmm. response. So we immediately said, okay, one person needs to work on breathing with the kids as much as we could. Because they're on a microphone calling kids' names. By the time their parent came, their name would be called on the mic and they would be able to go to their parent. And you had all the parents outside, of course, flipping out. I'm just curious. I have to, I'm going to ask a couple questions, but 
question I have for this moment, and I, I want to give you just sort of quick clarification purposes so I can understand and our audience can understand the circumstances. Um, was there a concern that they were going to call a kid's name that was not going to be there because they had died in the shooting? No, that no one died oh. in the shooting. This okay, is the, okay. this is what I want to preface okay. that nobody that we didn't know this at the time, mm-hmm. but nobody died. There was an injury. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll get to kind of how that played that's out. That's fine. Yeah. Because that's yeah. part of the unknown. The body, we all want to know is everybody okay? Is sure. every like who's impacted? So then there was another threat. There was another death threat that came on <laughs> while we were there. Mm-hmm. They had to lock down the building again. So here we're traumatized again. So we're thinking, okay, they've stabilized the situation and now there's another threat. So you could see in real time, fight, flight, or freeze font. I mean, you could see the flop responses, which is kind of the faint response. You could mm-hmm. see the physiology of a whole mass of people. So what we did is we tried to stabilize with the breathing while they're on the microphone calling children. Then they segmented the children. So they had the children that were in the classroom. So what happened was we later found out uh, there was a seventh grade boy. And he went to the bathroom, grabbed a gun in his backpack, went back into the classroom and shot a girl, then tried to shoot the teacher. The Mm. teacher took a basketball and threw it at the kid and was able to, he's a football coach, was able to tackle him. (laughs) And he became the hero of the story. I mean, there was many heroes. There was many forgotten heroes that actually were, came to the aid. There was the school nurse. You had other teachers come to the aid. You had students help. I mean, there was a lot, but he became kind of the, of course, the hero because he thought fast on his feet and he threw the, he threw the basketball and was able to stop the shooter from continuing any more destruction. So they apprehended the student. They were able to stabilize the situation and the girl was able to make a fairly full recovery, um, which is a miracle. So what we had was then we had the students that were in the classroom. That was another group that was traumatized that they wanted us to work with. Then we had teachers that were in freeze. They were in freeze and they were in shock and they were scared because here's what we know about crises as therapists. We have our own experience. We had our own kids in different schools. We had teachers with their own children in the building and in different schools. They never signed up to be first responders. They signed up to be teachers. So you have dual experiences happening all the way around. So we then had another group of teachers that were in freeze, and we immediately started stabilization with breathing and the tappers. Mm -hmm. And then those that wanted to talk, we put the tappers on and we let them talk. We let them process because we know the quicker we can process, depending on the person, the less likely they are to develop PTSD. So we, at the same time, we're resourcing them, we're letting them process, we're resourcing them and we're we're doing our own. We have to be resourced in order to hold mm-hmm. the space. So we were, we were in groups and then they had called in other professionals, mental health professionals in the community that also came in and helped. And I think we learned a lot through that, that we had, here's the traumatized people we had, the teachers, we had the administrators, we had the students, we had the parents, 
we had people watching and hearing this on TV. So there were multiple factors happening at all at the same time and multiple areas of trauma that were going on all at once. And that was, I think, one of the pieces that was the hardest because you're trying to manage all of, plus our clinicians and the therapists and the first responders all were impacted because they're in shock. Like we didn't expect this to happen in our community. And it changed the trajectory of our community for the better. I mean, that's just the truth. Trauma came out of it. And we're still five years later, we still, the anniversary dates impact folks. We then took a role in the community of kind of rehabilitating the community. So the school system came up with a fund um, through the foundation to pay for therapy for students, for parents, for teachers, for administrators. And we kind of helped facilitate the healing. And so that was one of the benefits that came out of it was the school was willing to pay for therapy. And that I know that's not easily accessible in a lot of school districts, but I think it's important to note that the, the community and the leaders recognized that the community was traumatized. Yeah. And even as you're talking about that, Kristen, like my heart is like pounding mm-hmm. in my chest, even listening to that. And the mm-hmm. moment that you talked about like the mayor's office calling your practice to ask for you to come to help, like chills literally went through my whole body thinking about, what? wow, like you and your practice being in just the right place, just the right location at just the right time to be able to help. And I also want to point out, you talked about some of the heroes in the story. And again, I mentioned this very humble nature. You didn't mention you or your team, but clearly all of you jumped in and responded. Um, And I know that one of the things that we'll talk about, you know, you're talking about this fund that was set up for everybody else, the students, the parents, the teachers, first responders. And I know one of the things we're going to talk about is how do you and anyone else who responded take care of yourselves? You're the mental health professionals who are coming on in. You're in this situation too. And now you're put in a position of continuing to help while also navigating whatever is still there for you and your team. It's such an important piece. And I want to say that the relationships that a lot of our clinicians had built with the mayor, like that was why he called them. I mean, one of our clinicians, there's a relationship there and we can offer also offer our services. And I'm not sure if we offered it or he called or I don't know the exact details, but something along those lines. And when we we knew that we were had vicarious trauma, because anytime a siren would come, we're like, is there mm. another shooting? I could feel it. I was like, oh, is there another? And so did the parents, so did mm-hmm. the students. But anytime I was in my office and I could, a siren would go by, I knew, I was like, oh, something bad's happened. We do our own work. We, I was like, we, we talk about it as a team. We meet every Wednesday and we did vulnerability. I said, okay, how are you feeling about this? What's coming up for you? We did our own EMDR because I knew in my nervous system that it was there. Like I said, when the siren passed, I thought, and and it's still sometimes I have to be in connected to my nervous system to know that that left an imprint, even though the intensity is less and I'm not as activated by it. There is an imprint that was left from these events that shape you in some way, shape or form because you don't expect it to happen. So knowing your nervous system responses, 
knowing how that affected you emotionally as a clinician and then hearing the play-by-play from students, I can't tell you, it still brings me to tears. The panic they felt is so emotional. Well, that's a good segue to the question I want to ask is, knowing what you knew um, at the time, how did you prepare yourself to walk into that room? And what was it like to walk into that room for our audience to look to hear, you know, because I feel like based on the information, the little information you had at that at the time, you know, they said, okay, well, all the students are in this, this gym now. We're going to send you in here. But you have to know that like new, even before you walked in there, that it was just going to be just, you know, it sounds like it was silence, but you had no idea. It could have been chaos. But, no but you knew that the emotional roller coaster was just going to be off. And I feel like as a therapist, one of the things that practitioners such as yourself are have to be masters at is regulating your own emotions, regulating your own kind of mental positioning, I guess. I don't know how to describe it. When you're dealing with you know acute trauma like that, can you talk just a little bit about that? How did you kind of get yourself ready for that moment? Absolutely. There were three of us in the car and we both, we all three just prayed at that time because we're like, okay, we need something bigger than us to help us through this. We took several deep breaths together. We prayed together and we said, okay, God, use us to help Mm -hmm. facilitate Mm -hmm. healing in whatever way we can. We were able to check in with each other. I go, how are you doing? How are you doing? Are we breathing? Mm -hmm. And by us facilitating breathing, it helped keep us kind of centered and regulated, which helped. There was another, this is really important. There was another school therapist that got it. Mm -hmm. She was on it. She saw the children. She had a therapy dog with her. She saw the kids. She helped. That therapy dog was instrumental in helping regulate the children. I mean, I'm calling them children. Perfect. They're seventh graders. They're still mm-hmm. children. She facilitated what she'd do is she, because my other, one of my therapists already had a relationship with her. They used to work together or had something, some connection. And so she'd go, okay, I need you to do this. I need mm-hmm. you to do this. And she would tell us. Here's why I need you to go after we kind of did our breathing with the with the whole group. Then she pulled us aside and she knew what teachers were struggling because she had a relationship with those teachers, administrators, administrators and students. Mm-hmm. Then she could help pull us in on where we needed where who needed the most help, everybody needed help, but who was needed the most help at the time. And us really talking to each other as we went along checking in with each other was pivotal was pivotal in our ability to regulate our relational skills between the between our team mm-hmm. and you know if anyone was struggling we would have to pull ourselves out of it and regroup no one at the time was i mean that didn't happen however we knew if it did happen we would have to pull ourselves out recenter regroup and if we weren't going to be able to carry on that's okay it's knowing ourselves enough to know what can I do, what can't I do. And on all fairness, we were also in shock. Mm-hmm. If I'm really clear on that, we were also in a little bit of adrenaline rush. Mm-hmm. We've never been through this. I'd never been through a shooting. I didn't know. I mean, this is, I didn't have any idea. I knew how to deal with trauma. I knew how to help people regulate their nervous system out of fight or flight or freeze. I knew I had to be regulated. But you're still in somewhat shock. I mean, honestly, I mean, you're breathing through it. You're tending to your nervous system. We're talking about it. And yet we're still in shock that we're even here. Mm -hmm. It's like surreal. Like we're here. CNN is there. 
Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh my gosh, CNN's here. <laughs> like, they're broadcasting on CNN, wow. the whole thing. I mean, this was a big deal. So CNN's filming things. There's camera crews everywhere. This was back in 2018. I mean, there's camera mm-hmm. crews everywhere. And it happened at a middle school. Mm-hmm. So the age of the, I mean, this is young kids. I mean, similar to the elementary school. I mean, they're right there. They're just little babies. And so mm-hmm. they're not babies, but they're children. Sure. Yeah. So it was overwhelming. It was like something you'd see on TV, but we're actually living it. Mm-hmm. Well, it's something we did see on TV, but that's the thing. That's what's crazy is like you see this on TV and you're actually going through it. And, you know, just the, it's, it's just incredible. I don't even know how someone can, can prepare themselves for something like that. Right. Um, one, one question I have for you, um, and this is more of a question coming from someone who's not a, a practitioner. There are maybe some people who listen to this our podcast who are listening to this episode who are not therapists or not practitioners or maybe our practitioners aren't familiar with EMDR. It stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. It was founded mm-hmm. by Dr. Francine Shapiro over 40 years ago. She was mm-hmm. working with Vietnam vets and they were doing talk therapy and struggling with alcohol, PTSD, flashbacks, nightmares. They were having relationship trouble. And she noticed, oh, when you're like going into sleep, your eyes are moving back and forth. You're reprocessing. Mm -hmm. So she started playing with eye movement at the beginning to Mm -hmm. see, oh, you're reprocessing and accessing different parts of your brain and your body and emotions. And you're Mm -hmm. able to release what was held in the nervous system and have less intensity, no nightmares, freedom that they hadn't experienced. Mm -hmm. And now we've learned through 40 years of research and the de- we have government endorses EMDR now. Mm-hmm. The effects are when we can reprocess what someone's feeling, seeing, hearing, smelling, experiencing in the nervous system as close to real time as possible, they're less likely to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. So what we did, when I say tappers, they like buzz in your tappers. hands. Mm-hmm. They're called tappers. And you can do EMDR with eye movement. You can do tapping. You can do um, the buzzies. There's many different ways to do EMDR now. We call it bilateral stimulation. We Having those tappers was, they help regulate the nervous system. And mm-hmm. so people would just hold them and they'd be like, okay. And you could watch the breathing change. You could mm-hmm. see them recentering. And then at the end, what we did, I forgot we did this, but we held the tappers ourselves. Mm. After we did the processing, now it's coming back to me. I was like, okay, let's hold the tappers. Let's reset. Now, if it's too activating for someone, we don't have to use the tappers. We can use you know, what we call a butterfly hug where you cross your arms in front of you and you're basically kind of hugging yourself, but you're doing a right, left, right, left tapping. And that can be done. You can use your feet with tapping your feet. And what that helps do, it helps relax the nervous system enough to do the processing necessary to release it. You don't have to tell me what happened. You don't have to give me a play-by-play. I don't need all the details. I know your body and brain are going to do what it needs to do. Same with brain spotting is another offshoot Mm -hmm. of EMDR that also does that. I never realized that I would be using that to this degree in real time. Yeah. I mean, I thought, yeah, I could go on a scene. And, you know, I know we do that for first responders often now. We're kind of known for this work. We weren't at the time. I mean, I didn't realize that we would be, this would be 
something we would do more often than we than we do now. I mean, I didn't realize this would become what it is now. Yeah. And I think I'm thinking so many things right now. One, I'm really glad that you kind of explained the different options you had available available because Definitely. at first I'm imagining like this overwhelming scene, a gym full of tons of students and a handful of therapists with like five pairs of tappers. Um, but just having that reminder, like, yeah, we can tap, we can do the butterfly hug, right? And to be able to do that without needing any equipment. So I think that that is just a really helpful reminder of options available to us when we are in a very un- unusual and unfortunate situation and, and needing to be able to help as many people as possible at one time. And you're right. That's the other thing I'm sitting here thinking, like no one expects to be in this position when you're going to school, you know, to be a counselor, or a social worker or any other kind of mental health practitioner. You know, Dana, I talk about protecting your practice. This isn't what you think about, right? How situations you might be in of needing to protect yourself or others. One of the things I wanted to ask about that I thought was really interesting in terms of even protecting your clients, protecting yourselves, your office was we needed to lock up. And someone said, we need to lock up. And that a lot of times people might think that you just have to, you know, be careful of where something happened. And I know that I would never have thought we need to secure our building. And I'm just wondering how did you or how did your team know to do that? So by the time I had come out, there were two clinicians and they're like, we need to do a lockdown. And I, because they got tech, we got text messages from the school mm-hmm. saying we're locking down. I think they had recommended locking down the community at that point. If I recall mm-hmm. something along those lines, there might've been a recommendation, but they had an instinct. It was more instinctual. Like we need to lock down. Because wow. we don't know if this, get, I mean, we were hearing so many sirens okay. like, coming out. Are they coming towards so us? So it was because of lack of information, right? It was because of a lack of information. You have no idea what was happening. Community didn't know where this shooting was originating from. I understand it. Okay. We knew it was the, yeah. where the school was, but we are down the street from the school. So right, we're thinking, right, totally. they could come over here. We need to sure. secure. The, and now that was such a key point in helping people feel safe and secure to lock down the building. It helped because. What happened was the client felt like you guys know what you're doing to keep us safe. You guys know what you're doing. I feel safe with you. You're on top of things. I feel I can trust you. It was really what helped contain our the people that were there already because they're like, okay, they know what they're doing. They they've got us. They're protecting us as best as we could. I mean, with what we knew. I would imagine that you're describing also is probably true for um, the students and staff that were in that gymnasium. Because, you know, you describe how you walk in and you saw teachers even in that flight or flight uh, response and, you know, kind of frozen in status space. Well, you know, as a student, if you go through these middle schoolers, they're looking to the teachers for, for reassurance and the teachers can't respond, which is understandable. To have you guys come in, I feel like that same kind of mentality, that same kind of response um, would have been so critical to the students to have you guys there to to do that. It was such a, it was interesting that the mayor immediately thought to do that because I wonder whether, you know, in other communities or, you know, other situations that would have been the first thought that people would have had is, okay, we need to get, you know, trauma, um, you know, specialists in here right away. It, it seems very foresighted to do that. Yeah. And if I'm remembering, I, my memory as I was talking, I was like, did he or did did she reach out to him? So I doesn't I'm not matter, but really someone sure. did. 
Somebody did. Somebody yeah. had the foresight of doing it. One of the things I think that's so important that you're saying is when we got in there and they weren't breathing. If anybody's been traumatized, you'll see there's very shallow breathing. They're very the labored, like they're not breathing deep, regulated breaths. They looked like a deer in headlights and they were looking for somebody mm -hmm. to help them. And so you saying that, so they were look, I was like, and they were looking at me like, okay, I'll do what you say because mm -hmm. they didn't, they were so traumatized. So I said, okay, feel your feet on the floor. We did a lot of regulating, centering, because they were out of their bodies. We know we need to get people mm -hmm. back into their bodies when there's trauma and to take a group into their bodies is a lot. So we did the, mm -hmm. we went by section. I would get the whole section. My other colleague would get this section and we go, okay, feet on the floor. And we don't have a mic at, mm -hmm. you know, we're not mic'd. At one point they did hand us the mic after they saw what we were doing, but we're like feet on the floor, to feel your body in the, on the bench. I mean, we were in the bleachers, you know, Okay, I want you to breathe through your nose. We did exactly coaching slowly, step by step by step, because you can see they can't hear you if they're dis dissociated at all. They're not meaning they're not in their bodies because they're in a survival state. So we really worked on regulating their nervous system and getting them back to the body. And some of the teachers like, okay, okay. And then we were telling the teachers, you can now work with this section, you know, even though they were still traumatized we had to have help. And in hindsight, we wanted to get on that microphone and we wanted to do this as a collective, but they were in such a, we've got to have the, the first responders, understandable. We didn't want to override them, but they were trying to manage the pairing up parents with children. Mm -hmm. So there was this kind of juxtaposition between the children listening for or the students, I should say students listening for their name and trying to do the breathing at the same time. Because what we found out later is they felt trapped in there. Mm -hmm. We thought, oh, you're, they felt trapped again. They felt trapped in a classroom because they locked the school down. They locked the classroom down and they felt trapped again in the gym. Mm -hmm. So it reinforced the trauma of feeling trapped. Then they had mm -hmm. the other threat come in, which really enforced being trapped because what they want to do is they want to. Their bodies want to move. They want to run. Mm -hmm. They want to escape. And when you lock down the gym, and I'm not picking on anybody because that was how you can contain a big situation, but it created the feeling of trapped again. Did they lock down? So the middle school students were in the gymnasium. The high school students obviously were still in the school too. Correct. Did they lock, they were, were they locked into their own classrooms as well? Some of them were locked in classrooms and some of them were in the gym. They had to okay, kind so, of segment, they had to segment everybody. So some mm -hmm. were still in the classroom. They were trying to clear out the classrooms at some point after they cleared that second threat. And so then they were the ones that were kind of, they were trying to release those folks mm -hmm. to parents. And that's why now there's a big movement here to let their children have cell phones mm -hmm. in the classroom because the children were texting. It was like a lifeline to their parent. Wow. And texting their parent in real time. And that's why the parents were traumatized. Like they're freaking out. They're like, my daughter's, you know, texting me, my son, whoever. And now there's a big movement here. Like do not separate the cell phones from the children, from the students. Wow. Um, question for you. Echoing someone thing that Melissa said earlier, you know, especially about the fact that you played down 
the magnitude of, of your own accomplishments. But how did you know to do what you did? Because Instinct. I think our training. Uh, and what, you know, what I mean by that is, yeah, is, is to me, it seems like to have the foresight, to have the, the mindfulness to be able to operate in that kind of situation, to be able to provide services in that critical uh, moment. Almost, I wonder. Like, do you feel like your training, previous training, helped? Do you feel like your time in the corporate world, you know, helped you kind of have that kind of presence of mind? Like, what prepared you to be able to operate and act as you did when it was needed to, when it was needed in that moment? Because I think that's a question that any of us. I think I'm sitting here, even thinking to myself, like, gosh, if that ever happened, would I know what to do? Would I? How would I handle it? And here you are doing it. <laughs> and I feel yeah. like it's not can't just be instinct, although I'm sure that's part of it. I feel like, you know, there must be some level of training or ability that you've, you've mastered at this point to get you into that position to to take over in that moment. A couple of things come to mind. One, I didn't have a student at the middle school. That helped. So mm-hmm. I wasn't going through, did my student, is my student okay? Did the, mm-hmm. my student mm-hmm. get tra- my kid get traumatized? So that's number one. Mm-hmm. That could have really gone a different mm-hmm. way for me had mm-hmm. my kid been there or experienced that relatively close. I would have probably had a different experience. Second of all, I think having a good team helped tremendously because we were working together mm-hmm. on what to do next. And since we're all, all of us are, my whole team is EMDR trained and brain spotted trained, all of us. Mm-hmm. And it was a requirement that I did that before this happened. Mm. And I am mm. so glad I did because we all were operating out of the same trauma lens mm-hmm. and what we know to do in trauma. So that training helped the foundation of we know what to do. We just haven't applied it to this magnitude. Let's do what we know to do. And then each of us providing feedback on here's what I think. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, here's what I think that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Working together collaboratively was also very important. I definitely think my business experience has helped me in many different situations, very much so. Because I kind of can go into problem solve, right? big picture, here's what I see. And that trauma training is absolutely precedes. That would be my most important coupled with my business training. Yes, that helps. In doing my own work, had I not done my own therapy work, before all this, and I hadn't worked through my own trauma, that could have activated some very serious thing. I mean, I, I don't know, but it could have activated if I hadn't done my own work. Mm-hmm. That's why it's such a it's necessity for us as clinicians to invest in our own selves and our own healing. So if something happens, my nervous system, yes, was high. Yes, was it impacted for sure. I also know that that work I had done prior, plus my training, plus my team and all the formula helped. Yeah. Now, Kristen, one of the things that I've been thinking about kind of along these lines, like I'm imagining you have a very short amount of time to respond. Are we going? Are we not going? Who's going? Who's staying? And and even with that training, I can imagine that some people might be like, yes, let's go. And other people like maybe some of that freeze already, like, I don't know if I want to go. And I'm wondering how you negotiated that with your team. We sent a text out and said, hey, we're headed over to the high school. We can get in. They've asked us to come. We can get in. Does anyone want to join us? Because mm-hmm. I already had my team here that was like, I'm going. And I was like, okay, mm-hmm. we're on board. I even had to go. Do I want to do this? <laughs> like, do I want to? 
put myself here? And the answer was pretty clear. Yeah. Yeah. You're needed. You have the training. Let's go. And then some people opted out because they had conflicts or whatever. And I didn't, I wanted it to be clear whether they wanted to be there or not. It wasn't yeah. a requirement whatsoever. If it was too activating, I understood. We had some people that came later. They couldn't come with us, but they came mm-hmm. later to help. And then we had lots of, most of all of my team said they wanted to work with people to rehab, like on the, uh, on the therapeutic end. Everybody mm-hmm. did. We were jammed, packed. I mean, we were so busy, still are, in really working on clearing that trauma out. And I cannot tell you, like it brings tears to my eyes, that it's life-changing, this training we did. It impacted generations. Had we not done what we did, this could have been, and still might, I'm not saying for everybody, Still, people still struggle. And I know we impacted generations. Yeah. And and the thing that I'm thinking about as we're talking is, you know, even when, I mean, fortunately, most people have not gone through this situation, right, in their workplaces. Um, but even when we haven't experienced those things in our own workplaces, hearing about them can be impactful as well. I know when, you know, during the pandemic, there were, I feel like there were multiple workplace shootings that were in the news. And I remember thinking about that if I were in that situation where something awful like that happened at my office, um, it it got my wheels turning. I know that that maybe sounds a little bit morbid, but one of the benefits that we have now at my office is life insurance. Like, because I like, you know, again, it sounds a little bit morbid, um, but I'm thinking like, if anything ever happened to anyone at my office for any reason, like I want to make sure that we're doing something to take care of them. Right. But that's just from seeing these things in the news. Right. Like, how awful is that? Right. Just kind of the impact of hearing about those things and the things that they make us think about. And we have a lot more questions for you, Kristen. I'm wondering, though, about that recovery piece, because that's also so important. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about recovery for the community, the students, first responders, for your team, if you can talk to that a little bit and also what you've learned as the community collectively goes through that process? There's so much we learned and I'll try to summarize what we learned. We got pretty quickly involved in working with the school on how to talk to the kids, equip them about breathing, emotions, talking about feelings, regulating a classroom and equipping them on how to handle it and that emotional awareness component rather than stuffing it back down into the nervous system. Like it's important for them to have a voice. It's important for them to take a break. It's important for them to say, I feel really scared right now and be able to talk through that. So they ramped up clinicians, like they ramped up school counselors. I mean, we really, the school hired more people because I mean, the demand was, as you can imagine, necessary and needed. We then helped build programming with the school on how to address Mm -hmm. the trauma that had happened. We then, in terms of client work, the biggest piece was the fear of it happening again. And do I send Mm -hmm. my children, do I want to keep working here at the school or as a teacher or as an administrator? Some didn't want to. That was the end of the road. They don't want to be a first responder. They didn't They didn't want to be there. And this is okay to say, and it's okay for them to have felt this way. And it made sense. They were torn between my job as a teacher, and I care about these students, to my children that need me, that are there, 
And am I, I can't be with them because I have to be in my classroom. I can't go get my kid because I have to be in, I have to wait for all the parents to come with my class. Mm-hmm. And that's trauma being separated like that and not feeling trapped. So the fear of it happening again, there was a lot of reconciliation on, you know, is, is changing the way teachers function now. They have to do lockdown. I mean, we, they were already doing what we call Alice drills, and that's for something like this. So the good news is they were prepared. The, te- the school responded very quickly. We know that mental health and emotional wellness then had to be ramped up. That was the piece that had to grow. That was the piece that was necessary. And to acknowledge what happened, not go, okay, everything's good now. That's over now. We're moving on. I said, mm-hmm. we can't do that as because we right. want to just make it go away and not talk about it again. We can't do that. We have to acknowledge what happened. And that was hard. That's a tough thing because school systems are like, ooh, we're going to keep, people are going to keep getting activated. Well, they're going to get activated for not equipping them with tools and, right. and acknowledging what happened. So that's another component. And then in terms of our team, we, again, had to process it along the way. Mm-hmm. We had to because we heard things and that are very activating that are important for us to acknowledge and then process on our own. So what are things, what are takeaways? What are things that we can learn from this experience? You know, and I'm not talking about like school security and, you know, that's a whole nother discussion. But I'm talking this situation. One of the things we take away from learning, you know, things that we can learn about um, how we can better support the community, how we can better support victims or survivors of trauma um, such as this. You know, what were things that you in in your own community you could point to that that you felt like, you know, this is what we we learned from this? I think it's, I I can't say that enough. We talked about it. We processed it. We acknowledged Mm -hmm. the emotions. The other thing that happened during the pandemic that wasn't related to the shooting is the mayor of our town said, hey, do you think you could do a come on Facebook and talk about how to cope with the pandemic? You know, meanwhile, Mm -hmm. we're going through that at the same time, Mm -hmm. our clinicians and all of us. I said, absolutely. So guess what that turned into? Mental Health Mondays with the mayor. We do it. It was every week for two years and now it's every other week. It's bi-weekly. And we're talking about mental health. And the mayor is doing vulnerability, talking about emotional wellness. And I get on there and we talk about it and he's so vulnerable. He's like, my wife and I got in a fight. (laughs) Like He doesn't say fight, but you know, a disagreement. And I'm like, this is not your typical politician who's here. It's scary. I mean, he, so he's, he's showing our community how to be vulnerable, how to lean into that discomfort, how to tolerate it, how to acknowledge each other's feelings, how to have hard conversations and not ignoring the impact it's had. Mm-hmm. Because I see that a lot. We just move on. Yeah, but not everybody's moved on. We need to acknowledge the impact in the in the scar it has. And so we don't, and also you don't want to re-traumatize people with imagery mm-hmm. and Mm-hmm. things along those lines. So it's very important we're, we're being acknowledging the emotions. Mm-hmm. That's the key. So my own child has gone through these trainings like you've talked about. He's gone through them since he was in preschool. And I will tell you that now we're fortunate because my wife is a mental health practitioner. So there was a lot of support in terms of trying to explain to him, 
you know, and and keep them from becoming traumatized, traumatized. Because I think that even the act of sending a child through a drill like that, you know, introducing to the reality that there is danger in the world and you have to be prepared, and there's some degree of preparedness you have to do for it, is in itself can be very traumatizing for, for especially for a young child. So I'm curious because you mentioned you had an elementary school student who was at another school. Um, and I wonder if they obviously had their own trauma and how, you know, did you talk to them about it? What did you do without, you know, trying to get too personal or invade your personal space? But just curious to see how that reflected, because you mentioned something about how teachers had their own children in other schools that they couldn't get to. Well, you were one of those professionals who had a child in another school that you could not get to. And so I wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about how that impacted your own family. I think, first of all, the piece that I think is critical for family systems is you say, how are you feeling? Mm -hmm. What was that like for you? It's okay to share. It's okay to have your feelings around it. We did a lot of processing. They mm -hmm. did not tell them a lot of detail, which is important to note. It's not mm -hmm. helpful for, for them to go. And there was somebody that they don't need all, they can't process yeah. that. So they were very wise in saying, you're safe. Totally. It's okay. Now, one of the teachers in a different classroom was having had a student there and was having mm -hmm. a response that the children witnessed. Mm -hmm. So we got several of those kids that came into therapy mm -hmm. because they were traumatized because they saw the teacher mm -hmm. that their child was at the middle school react to that. And no, you know, that makes sense that the teacher's having mm -hmm. their own reaction. Of course yeah. they are. The children witnessed that have more, they had more of a trauma response mm -hmm. than the children that didn't, that the, when they said you're safe, it's secure here. And then some people had siblings that were in the other schools mm -hmm. and somehow there was contact there. But a lot of the elementary students at the time didn't have cell phones. Mm -hmm. So conversation, acknowledgement about their experience mm -hmm. and they'll talk maybe for a couple of minutes, then they're done. I mean, it's not yeah. like. Now, if they're really traumatized, then that may be a different story. Sure. So having open, safe place to share their experience and you go, I, I believe that was really hard. That makes sense. That was really hard to hear those words and to hold that tenderness and nurturing is so important, really, truly is essential. And, and Kristen, even in terms of talking about recovery, right? Anniversary dates, or as people are seeing shootings in the news, what have you kind of learned about the community's response mm -hmm. or coping, or even what you've learned people need as those anniversary dates or world events happen? It's important to understand that anniversary dates are felt in the body. They're felt in the nervous system. So someone could go, I, I, I don't know what the deal is. I just feel really Oh, irritable. I feel really scared right now. And I'm like, well, what happened around this time? So definitely the anniversary of the shooting in May is for sure the body can have memory of that. Even if you feel like, well, that was five years ago. And there's something else that happens that the sound you saw or you saw something on the news that can reactivate the body memory. Now, what I will say is those folks that have done a lot of brain spotting EMDR will have less. It doesn't mean they won't have a response, but it's much less intense if they do. And then we work on equipping the client around anniversaries, normalizing, talking about what can what you might experience. You might not, but you might. How to handle that, coping strategies. We for sure saw the first three years, there was for sure a major 
rehabilitation and anniversary dates, other shootings, and we're getting a little more distance from it, but it doesn't mean that doesn't still have, it has a, there's a wound there. There's an experience that happened, especially for those that were really involved in this. So acknowledging that, normalizing that, that makes sense. Your body remembers. After this, and your experiences, did you and your staff go through any further training? Did you feel it important to, now that you saw your training, you know, go into effect and have such an impact and you realized how important those methods that you have, you know, worked on and trained and help people, did you find it useful? Did you, you know, go through further training to kind of help you be able to be in a better position to help with some of this healing and trauma in the community? I decided after probably a couple, might have been a year or two after even, it might've been closer to, I can't remember exactly when I decided that we were going to, I was going to pay for a training Mm -hmm. with my team every year Mm -hmm. because I believe in the trauma work. So we do advanced EMDR training. We did brain spotting training, all the levels we would do. I mean, and I would pay for it because I wanted them to feel equipped. Mm -hmm. And along the same lines, the their own therapy is just as important mm-hmm. as the training, like equally as important because mm-hmm. we can only take clients as far as we've gone. And so if we haven't been doing, you probably heard that before, but if we haven't been doing our own work, we're going to be less able to handle something of this magnitude and not, even if I have had therapy, I'm still going to be impacted. Mm-hmm still going to be impacted. And so that ongoing training is definitely an investment that I have no qualms about making for them personally, professionally, and as a team. We all then share the same language. We have, of course, our authentic self and our own approaches to therapy, yet we have the same, we understand trauma the same way. So there's shared language, there's shared understanding, there's collaboration in it. And that I can't put a price on. Now, in terms of this idea of training, this was something that you required even before this happened, you mentioned. And I'm wondering, again, we learn sometimes as a result of unfortunate circumstances. And for practitioners who have never been through this, hopefully never will be through this. Is there anything, having gone through this, that you would recommend or that you think other practitioners could take away from this? I think even having a proactive conversation, like let's talk about how we might handle a lockdown, how we might handle a shooting. I hate saying that, how we might handle... Sometimes we would talk about homicidal clients, suicide. I mean, we talk about those types of things, but how would we handle a community incident? And having a debrief about... We can talk all how we might handle it. And then when we go through it, of course, we're going to learn a lot. But you can almost create like a, a debriefing of sorts of how, would you know, here's some scenarios. What, what, how would we handle that? That's something to think about. And how would we do a lockdown if necessary? That would be the other piece. And then the third piece I would say is how, who's leading the charge of who's leading the, the crisis management? Do you have somebody to lead crisis management? Do you feel confident with that person? Do you have two people leading crisis management? Who is your crisis manager? And do they want to take on that role? Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing about your experience today, Kristen. Such a hard experience. And 
that, you know, the people listening, they can't see your face. They may have never seen, you know, that beautiful smile you have, but I'm just thinking like, if I were ever in a situation or, <laughs> or family, right? Like I would want a Kristen. I have the same thought. I would want I thought, a Kristen to be like, there. She's so, she's so soothing. Her voice is so soothing. Right. And she does. She has this beautiful smile. So you just, Aww. I can just imagine like how, like much, you know, how helpful that probably was both in the circumstances as it was happening and in the aftermath, you know, it's, a, it's I was just thinking of that. <laughs> yeah. So on this one hand, I'm, you know, it's really unfortunate that you had to be in that situation. And yet at the same time, how fortunate that you were the person who was there. Totally. Thank you. I have an amazing team too. And they're, they're just phenomenal. So that helps so much to be surrounded by that. Thank you both. That is, I'm like over here almost crying. <laughs> kind of you. <laughs> well, I've been getting watery thinking about it. I'm like, yeah. I would want a Christian. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, so just really impactful. Uh, it's interesting because what, you know, talking with you, and, and this is not the first time I've, con- you know, considered this kind of topic, but I feel like every parent with a child, or, you know, and I have a young child, these are the kind of things, scenarios that run through your head. Even I'm a little triggered as we're having this conversation because I'm just imagining, you know, that phone call, like, you know, where my own sister, child's in school and something happened, you know, how, how would I react? And that's going through the back of my head as we're talking. I'm just, you know, I think everyone does that. And I think it's so useful and just supportive to be able to have this conversation um, for everyone to listen to, because I think that we all can relate to both the position you're in and then also the parents and the administration school and the teachers and everything, and the students that in that they were in. So this has been great. Well, thank Kristen, you we know there are many ways, many places that people can find you. Can you tell us if people are like, I want to get in touch with Kristen, how can they find you? How can they reach you? There's two places. It's Kristen, K-R-I-S-T-E-N-D-Boyce.com. And then Pathways to T-O, Healing Counseling is the group practice. And then Close the Chapter podcast was really... I started that after the shooting. Mm. Now that I'm even saying it out loud, I'm like, okay, it was a place to help people find healing in between their own growth work. Or Mm. if you're in therapy or you just like, you're like, I just need more. I need more to help me on my journey. So that's why I started the close the chapter podcast. And then on social, Kristen D. Boyce on Instagram and Facebook and all the places. Yes. Well, thank you again, Kristen. We're so glad you could be here. Thank you yes. so much. Thank you so much. It's it's like I said at the beginning of the, the, the show, it's it's not always a pleasure to have someone with your experience and um, your stories to tell, but it's also wonderful to be able to chat with someone that we know pretty well. And to everyone else listening, you know, if you have any interest, if you have a practice or you're a practitioner and you've um, had something you've had to overcome in your own practice, um, we would love to hear from you. If you have something you think that other people could benefit hearing from, we ask you definitely to please con- you know, reach out and, and contact us. You can contact us on Facebook and contact us on our webpage. Um, and in general, you know, especially on this topic, if you're someone who's listening and you have thoughts or questions or an opinion, um, we would love to have you weigh in. Please, again, use the Facebook and touch base with the, the webpage. And that, we thank you, as always, for listening. And we will talk to you in next time with the next topic. 
Thank you for listening to the Protecting Your Practice podcast. Be sure to visit protectingyourpractice.com to connect with us, continue the conversation, and access additional information. As a reminder, the information on this podcast does not constitute legal advice. Listeners should contact their own attorney or paid consultant for all decisions regarding their own practice.